Good evening, everyone. Tonight's subject is population control. And not like population control, some out there conspiracy theory. We're actually talking about policies that have been implemented and funded by various NGOs, governments, throughout the last 60 years. Um, the, we're going to actually read through an article um, written by Chelsea Follett at the Cato Institute on neo-Malthusianism. <laughs> neo-Malthusianism. And that's a fancy word. It basically, it's a theory that population, it's, it's a theory that is the basis for um, justifying population control. Okay. And I mean, it, you'll see how we go through, when we go through this article, and the, the actual policies that have been put in place in various countries and uh, things from sterilizing your population to, um, you know, like China's one kid per family laws and things like that. Um, but uh, Malthusianism is basically the theory that population grows at an exponential rate. However, our capacity to produce resources for the population, i.e. food, moves at a linear rate, okay? So this is a theory. It has been proven wrong. And actually, I believe in the article she goes through this, um, that actually as population grows, we actually increase our capacity to produce at an exponential rate. Um, because the more people you have, the more... You know, inventiveness, um, the more ingenuity, and you actually, your society and your technology and things like that advance at a greater rate with this exponential population growth. So without further ado, like I said, feel free to jump in at any time, ask any questions, anything like that, but we're going to go through this. Okay, so the title of the article is Neo-Malthusianism and Coercive Population Control in China and India. Overpopulation concerns often result in coercion. Okay, now I'm going to insert another note here. And as we go through this, I'll also be tying this back into uh, some other not-so-popular justifications for population control like eugenics. Okay, now eugenics used to be a publicly acknowledged, publicly accepted uh, principle theory for population control, it just got really unpopular when that guy Adolf Hitler kind of took it and ran. Um, so now they don't like to talk about it, but it doesn't mean that it's still not being used today to justify the controlling of populations, the culling of the herd, uh, the decimation of populations. And I think uh, by the end of this, we'll be able to tie this into some of the things, a lot of the things, many of the things, maybe all the things that we see happening all around us in the news, in our culture, in our societies, all around the world, that this is clearly still policy. And these are the theories that they use to justify it. And actually, neo-Malthusianism also ties into the whole climate crisis debate. Okay? So you can see that there's a, there's a lot on the table here that we're experiencing in our society right now that is really talking points to justify population control. 
Now, whether or not they'll outwardly admit it, they've justified it. Okay, so moving on, moving into the article. In the 1960s and 1970s, Neo-Malthusian panic about overpopulation overtook eugenics as the primary motivation behind coercive policies aimed at limiting childbearing. Neo-Malthusian ideas spread among senior technocrats and government leaders in some developing countries, resulting in human rights abuses that Western development professionals encouraged and that Western aid often funded. Those abuses peaked in the form of China's one-child policy, 1979 through 2015, and India's forced sterilizations during its quote-unquote emergency, 1975 through 1977, appeared in India when civil liberties were suspended and the prime minister ruled by decree. Ooh, ruled by decree. That sounds like everywhere right now. The one-child policy saw over 300 million Chinese women fitted with intrauterine devices. I believe they call those IDUs or something. Uh, modified to be irremovable <laughs> without IUD. surgery. IUD, okay. I knew it was something mm -hmm. like that. Um, irremovable without surgery. Over 100 million sterilizations and over 300 million abortions. Many of these procedures woke, were coerced. In a similar vein, India's emergency saw 11 million sterilizations. Many of them were forced. China, and to a far lesser extent India, still have troubling policies. After softening its one-child policy to a two-child policy, China continues to brutally enforce family size limits and to require birth permits from prospective parents and parents seeking to expand their families. Coercion continues to define an unknown share of the country's 9 million annual abortions. In India, political representation is apportioned in a way that punishes states with high birth rates. Half the people in India live in states with policies that penalize to varying degrees families with more than two children to discourage large families. Fortunately, recent policy changes are reversing heavy financial penalties imposed earlier on high fertility states. Neo-Malthusian policies aimed at limiting family size have increased female infanticide and sex-selective abortion in China and India. Skewing the world's sex ratio at birth to 107 boys per 100 girls. The natural ratio in a place where you're not forcing abortions and things like that is typically 105 boys to 100 girls. Neo-Malthusianism remains the chief cause or justification of family size restrictions. Countering overpopulation hysteria continues to be important. In 1983, the United Nations Population Fund, the UNFPA, then the United Nations Fund for Population Activities, the world's largest multilateral source of funding for government population programs, began issuing a prize called the Population Award to be presented annually to an individual, to individuals, or to an institution for the most outstanding contribution to the awareness of population questions 
or their solutions. And again, a reminder, uh, the article has been posted and there's uh, footnotes and resources, you know, so that you can actually find all the actual facts behind these policies, these programs, the funding and everything else. The first prize winners were Indira Gandhi, India's prime minister, who declared a national emergency that suspended civil liberties and mandated sterilizations on a massive scale between 1975 and 1977. And uh, again, I'm inserting here. If uh, those of you who are aware, there's actually been a lot of controversy that not only in India, but also in many countries in Africa, where the Bill Gates vaccines programs were also found to be sterilizing. And this is outside of that. So uh, just a reminder that also sterilizations have been occurring through the use of vaccines in India and various African countries as well. And Qin Jingjiang, head of China's State Family Planning Commission and the man in charge of the country's one-child policy, which lasted from 1979 to 2015. The course of nature of India's emergency and the atrocity of child, uh, China's one-child policy were already well known. The Nobel Prize-winning economist Theodore Schultz, chairman of the University of Chicago's Department of Economics, resigned from the UNFPA Advisory Commission in protest of the award recipients. Why did the United Nations applaud Gandhi and Xinjiang, who had overseen coercive policies that victimized millions of people? Part of the answer can be found in the UN Secretary General Javier Perez de Coulard, yeah, de Coulard's statement as he presented the Population Award. If rapid population growth in the developing nations is left unchecked, it will evidently undermine, evidently, undermine all efforts for economic and social development and could easily lead to widespread depletion of each nation's resources. You see here, right there, justification of population control through the theory of neo-Malthusianism. He praised the vision and foresight of Gandhi and Xinjiang and their efforts towards controlling population growth. Neo-Malthusianism, defined as fear that a large population size could lead to a humanitarian and ecological disaster, again tying in the climate crisis, and that combating so-called overpopulation, thus an urgent problem, has real-world consequences. The belief has often resulted in support for coercive policies. Countering neo-Malthusianism is especially critical now, given the recent prominence of such thinking. At the 2020 World Economic Forum, oh, Klaus Schwab has now entered the picture. At the 2020 World Economic Forum in Switzerland, famed primatologist Jane Goodall opined, quote, all these environmental things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there was a size of population, if, yeah, if there was a size of population that there was 500 years ago. The world population 500 years ago is estimated at 420 to 540 million, or around 6.7 billion fewer people than today. So again, what is that? What is that? That's a statement justifying 
the eradication of 6.7 billion people. Goodall is far from alone in her belief that population growth is an urgent problem. In August 2019, the United Kingdom's Prince Harry, oh, great, was Meghan there? Subtly suggested that children are a burden to the planet and that responsible couples should have two maximum. Now, this is interesting. Uh, and this is me again inserting my own side note. Prince Harry, his grandfather, which was the husband of Queen Elizabeth, his name was Prince Philip, actually in an interview once said that if he could come back, if he could be reincarnated, he would come back as a deadly virus and eradicate the world's population. That's where their mindset's at. Maybe he came back as COVID. <laughs> Didn't he die right before it started? Huh. It was, it was totally Prince him. Phil. Yeah, Prince <laughs> Phil came back as COVID. Okay. So, I mean, Prince it, Harry. It is, it is called the coronavirus. That means crown, right? I mean, <laughs> just saying. Yep, yep. So he, he got a, his wish came true. How nice for him. Bill Nye. Oh, Bill Nye. The science guy supports the introduction of special taxes or other state-imposed penalties for having, quote, too many children. And popular television host Bill Maher in April 2019 declared, I can't think of a better gift to our planet than pumping out fewer humans to destroy it. The great under-discussed factor in the climate crisis is there are just too many of us. We don't need smaller carbon footprints we need less feet. Recent examples of neo-Malthusian writings include op-eds appearing in prominent outlets such as NBC News, Science Proves Kids Are Bad for Earth. <laughs> what dick wrote that? Morality suggests we stop having them. And the New York Times, would, would human extinction be a tragedy? Question mark. Which muses that it may well be then that the extinction of humanity would make the world better off. Well, yeah, except for the humans. Um, in April 2019, the progressive magazine Fast Company released a video titled, Why Having Kids is the Worst Thing You Can Do for the Planet. Gee, I'm wondering now why all these, uh, this younger generation, Generation Z, they don't even have sex with each other anymore. They're all addicted to porn. And none of them will be having kids. Especially I'm wondering. I'm wondering if all yeah. these people making these claims have kids. <laughs> my, no, thoughts they do. my thoughts. Like my thoughts exactly. Have kids. <laughs> it's okay for us to have kids, but the plebs, the peons, they should. I mean, I, I can only imagine if you got nine kids, you're like, yeah, these things are these things are toxic to the entire planet. Get rid of them. <laughs> well, no, well, no, no, no. It also, it's also goes into the conversation of dehumanization. Like, in reality, you're referring to children here, right? As being bad for the earth, right? That's, I mean, again, that's very telling. You know, we've seen there's the dehumanization of women, the dehumanization of children. And, you know, they've been dehumanizing men for eons. So that's nothing new for us, guys. But now they're dehumanizing women and children as well. What, Neil, what they're saying? Go ahead. I was going to say what what they're saying is essentially these these people who write these they're saying, well, your children are bad for my environment. 
Because <laughs> exactly. That's what they in, say. In <laughs> that accent, and, and it's in that accent that they say it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm curious as to how they justify that. I'm I'm wondering what kid has ever damaged the planet when it's the adults that are inventing and using the technologies and furthering, you know, plans and no, schemes no, of all kinds of stuff. It's, it's it's underhanded. This is the theory, okay? Mm -hmm. Because it, again, they're leaving out the eugenics part of it, right? Because the eugenics part is like, well, it's really there's a inferior people and there are superior people. They believe themselves to be superior. They're superior because, I mean, clearly they're superior because they got so much money. I mean, if we weren't superior, we wouldn't have so much more money than you. Duh. That's kind of how they see it. Um, but that's not a real popular opinion. That will get them, you know, targeted, killed, <laughs> attacked. Um, you're going to piss off a lot of people if you say, yeah, we should just kill all the poor people. Um, or all the blacks or all the Jews, you know, and this is the thinking of a eugenicist, but again, not a popular opinion. So they've come up with this theory that it's, it's bad. The popul population in and of itself is bad. Okay. So that this is there. The, what we're doing is we're work, We're going through, we're seeing the, the nature the character of this theory and how it's used to justify depopulation. Okay. So really, the, the claim here is that the children are the ones that are going to be consuming the most and for the most amount of time. No. So no, they're no, the no, ones no. that... It's okay, what's, what's going on here? It's just people. It's just well, people. Why are they talking I mean, about they kids? Because they can't come out and say, we need to kill all of you. <laughs> no. <laughs> they're saying, like, don't have any kids. We need kids to, are... the, We need to bring the population down. They're not talking about got kids it, that are alive it. right now. They're saying right. don't have kids know? are kids are moderately preventable. I mean, there are there are yeah. methods, right? <laughs> there, yeah, the, the, it is a choice. You know, yeah. you can't choose to have children or not to have children. So but, it's yeah. not kids; it's having kids and increasing yes. the population. Okay, exactly. Okay, I need to. I need to I, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say I need to. I need to stop my kids from dumping toxic waste. I mean, they keep doing it. I tell them not to. <laughs> and tell them to stop putting fluoride in the water, too. <laughs> Neomethusianism enjoys support among some prominent elected officials. While historically overpopulation alarmism was a bipartisan concern in the United States, championed by both Republicans and Democrats, in recent years, it has, it has been most common on the political left. Huh. Shocker. Um, when asked in September 2019 if he would enact a campaign to curb population growth to fight climate change if elected president, Senator Bernie Sanders, Democrat of Vermont, answered in the affirmative, noting he would focus on poor countries. You see that right there? They're not saying it by name, but that's eugenics. You are an inferior people. You are a poor country. You're an inferior people. Let's start with them. Let's get rid of them first. Republican couldn't that also mean? Couldn't that also mean that they're wanting, they're seeing way more kids being born in these countries? And so they're saying, these people in poorer countries are having five kids per family, but us in richer areas are having two kids per family. We need to start in lower income areas. Okay. That is, 
Ginji, you should join their team. You're, you, you, you already have all their talking points. Um, yeah, they, I, I knew they'd go there. <laughs> yeah, they do say shit like that. And in fact, again, you could go back and find the Bill Gates talk where he's talking about, yeah, we're going to go into all these African countries and we're going to vaccinate everyone. And he says, you know, the current world Give population them all condoms. is 7 billion. And we think we could get that down by like 15%. Wait, what? What did you just say? Oh, we're going to vaccinate people and it's going to lower the world population. Well, wait, I thought vaccination prevented disease. How does that lower population? Oh, it's our 11 herbs and spices, secret ingredients. <laughs> so, okay, you that. lost me. Okay. You lost me. I, I, don't worry about it. It was a joke. The only Genji, if not, Genji, I got it. Genji, one of the things that the vaccine prevents is a, is a sperm infection, otherwise known as a pregnancy. So, <laughs> right, that, that's what sperm it infections. Sperm infections. Yes, sperm, Clear, sperm yeah. infections are horrible. Yeah, they All probably right. have crowns on them too. They do. Mine do. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> get, let, let me get in. Let me get into after spoiler after Bernie. Spoiler alert. Bernie, Bernie tells us we need to focus on poor countries. Rep Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, one of the nitwits of the four nitwits of the apocalypse. Oh, I loathe AOC. Democrat New York famously questioned the morality of childbearing in the face of climate change earlier that year, asking, is it okay to still have children? And that's exactly how she said it. Presidential candidate and former <laughs> vice president Joe Biden has even voiced acceptance of China's family size limits, telling a Chinese audience, your policy has been one which I fully understand. I'm not second guessing of one child per family. Come on, man. You know, the thing. In November 2019, you know more than 11,000 scientists signed a report calling for the reduction of the world's population to combat climate change. That report went viral and was shared on social media by many U.S. political figures, including Sanders, Senators Ed Markey, Democrat Massachusetts, Chris Van Hollen, Democrat Maryland, as well as Representatives Jimmy Gomez, Democrat California, and Susie Lee, Democrat Nevada. Overpopulation alarmism prominent in decades and centuries past, is undergoing a renaissance. Others have offered in-depth critiques of neo-Malthusian theory. In turns, out the, in, it, tur it, turns. <laughs> it turns out that birth rates tend to fall without coercion as countries grow richer. Did you hear that, Gingy? Well, we should just give everybody a bunch of money and that'll just solve the problem. That's kind or of the plot to them, idiocracy. I, or we <laughs> let them industrialize. Like, in reality, allow them to build power plants, allow them to industrialize, and industrialization of a nation reduces child production, <laughs> birth rates, dramatically. Okay? Sperm infection. In fact... You actually have declining populations in many hyper-industrialized nations like Japan. Japan has no population control whatsoever. But in the next 20 years, they're going to have like 
three quarters to 60% of their population. So that Despite sounds like natural population ebb and flow. Right, exactly. Some of it's, Oh, there's some too of it's, many of us. I don't want kids. Oh, there's not enough of us. I'm having a lot of kids. Well, just kind of seems some, like a natural balance there to me. Japan's not the best example because some of that's cultural. They uh, there's there's a lot of just I've seen exposés on it where they talk about how given the given their work ethic and given how busy they are and how awkward they are and the prevalence of ready to I mean ready made entertainment in the form of anything mainly porn they can you well, know they can buy they, a, have, they can they have ve- panty vending machines yeah exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they have what? I'm sorry. Used panties. Yes. Vending machine. Oh. I, I, did, I didn't want to correct you, Brandon. I didn't want to even say those words. But <laughs> yeah, they, they do. And it, it's cultural. And, and they're, in fact, there was a whole, I think it may have been um, a vice thing where they were talking about how there are older Japanese women who specialize in fixing people up together. And the older, the older generation's like, you know, why don't you guys, you know, have a little fun? You know what I'm saying? And, Nobody's nobody's having any of it. It, it being sex. Do you think I could sell my panties? Uh, uh well, are you trying to sell them to me? Not you're not already. <laughs> Somebody. I'm like I've I kind of feel bad for throwing away of undies that you know they're throwing away a pair of undies that aren't ripped or anything, and I'm like these are just old. They've seen their day. Like what do I do with these? If I could make five bucks, you know, Genji. You know, you are in Austin. I was gonna say. <laughs> Quite, quite, I was gonna say quite easily. I say, like, Ginger, you're in Austin. Just open a food truck. <laughs> I don't think it's considered food. Oh shit! I maybe <laughs> edibles, panties. Austin. All right, food truck. Let, let's move others, on. Let's move on. <laughs> others have offered in-depth critiques of neo-Malthusian theory. It turns out the birth rates tend to fall without coercion as countries grow richer and that population growth may make resources more plentiful. So again, this is a contradiction to the theory. Thanks to humanity's capacity for innovation. Okay. So again, I actually mentioned this near the beginning when I was kind of, uh, contradicting or, or uh, rebuffing, rebutting the theory itself, um, that it's actually a statistical fact that as the country grows richer um, and, as, and as population grows, resources actually become more plentiful because of humanity's capacity for innovation. So, and again, we t- I talked a little bit about that at the beginning, how you have more people born, that means there's more minds right so there's more ingenuity there's more inventiveness things like that so you actually curb the problems of a culture or society by having more people so the theory was that the the resource production is kind of on a linear whereas human population is going exponential so the, the thought is that there would be too many people that we'd actually run out of resources but what history has proven is that the more people we have the more brains are fixing problems and thus we actually are able to create more resources and more solutions the more of us there are right think about this america is at its height of uh population we have 300 over 300 million people we've never had anywhere near that in history and yet 
we're at the most abundant we've ever been in history. So it's, it, it goes, they go hand in hand that as a, as a population grows, because again, you have more minds, you have more people working on problems, you have more people innovating, you actually become a more abundant society as opposed to, so you, so there, this theory that, that resources move linearly is a farce. Okay. And gotcha. where was I? Economist. Can, can I pause Simone. something here? Brandon, real quick, can I can I ask if yep. if maybe sure. it's possible that the abundance that you describe in today's world is probably due more to the titans um that that uh, preceded this you know these most recent generations where the percentage of people who created or contributed or somehow changed society and the compact for the better was proportionately higher than what's per hundred than than what's being produced today where you don't have that same level of education that same level of contribution, the same level of knowledge, the same level of moral ethics, the work ethic, or anything else. When you compare these, this, the most recent generations to those, say in the, you know, you're, you're, ge- you're here, here's the problem with that theory. You're generalizing. The reality is there are more geniuses today than there were in the past, and so a genius can create a solution that affects everyone in the entire population. So the fact that, yeah, you got a bunch of lazy millennials, that's my shout out to Matt. Um, he's not really lazy, um, but he is a millennial. Um, but it's, it's, there's still innovation happening. We're, we're definitely not stagnant. And every innovation occurring in our society is happening with modern minds and modern people, and it is creating more and more and more abundance. So right. I'm not saying that that's not a contribution. Our entire history is a contribution to that because we've been growing. We've been growing. We've been getting, in general, smarter. Like, yeah, there's a lot of fucking idiots out there. No question. But that's not, that's not saying that there's no geniuses. You know, the, the bell curve works both ways. And as the population grows, yeah, you have more idiots, but you also have more geniuses. So that's just, that's just statistics. Okay, it's that, economist. It's that. I'm sorry. I I was just gonna say it's that, it, well it's that it's that old comic of um of uh, people asking somebody asks God, you know why won't your cure why won't you cure cancer? And he's like, I sent you guys the doctors, but you kept aborting them. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's the right? same same sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, economist Julian Simon, I'm going to guess that's how you pronounce that, for example, argued that the human mind is the ultimate resource, allowing humanity to increase the supply of other resources, discover alternatives to overused resources, and improve efficiency of resource use. Recent research has found evidence supporting Simon's view showing that for, that every 1% increase in population is associated with commodity prices falling by around 1%. In other words, each additional person helps to decrease resource scarcity on average, suggesting that humans, when free to innovate and engage in market exchange, tend to be net creators rather than net destroyers. So again, this is actually also a, uh, a uh, 
testimony for the effectiveness of free markets. Because you, you're not going to necessarily see this in a non-free market because there's no innovation in a controlled market. Also, evidence shows that as countries grow richer and children's, children's odds of survival improve, couples tend to choose to have smaller families without being forced to do so. Contrastingly, parents faced with high rates of infant mortality in their communities tend to have large families, in part as a strategy to improve their odds of having at least some surviving children. This phenomenon is called the fertility transition. Today, even in sub-Saharan Africa, the world's poorest region, birth rates are falling voluntarily. The global population is projected to decline in the long run. So again, this again speaking right into the and, and and i'm not saying i don't even think that this necessarily happens at a conscious level where when you're in a when you have a high child mortality rate or then you will have more children i think that almost operates on a biological level for most people if you live in a culture where you know, one out of three children or, or worse, maybe one out of two children die in infancy or in young childhood. Biologically, you are programmed to procreate and propagate the species so you will have more children. So, and again, I'm not saying it's one way or the other, whether it's conscious, whether it's unconscious, but I am, but I do believe that biology, your, your biological instincts will push you to have more children if more children die in a culture. Yet many people remain convinced that overpopulation is an urgent problem, necessitating government intervention. So it is worthwhile to detail some of the consequences of neo-Malthusian ideas. This paper focuses on the world's two most populous countries, China and India, which together hold roughly 40% of the world's population. That's almost half the world's population in two countries. And are where Neo-Malthusianism are arguably caused the most suffering. While Neo-Malthusian human rights abuses peaked with China's one-child policy and India's emergency, problematic policies continue today. In both countries, Neo-Malthusian policies have contributed to higher rates of sex-selective abortion and infanticide. And for those of you who don't, sex selective abortion is like basically if they see that you're pregnant and you're in the in the fetus is female, a lot of times because they're limited to one child and they want to, I guess, carry on the name or whatever. In China, they have a preference to producing boys, so they will actually abort female fetuses. That's the sex. That's the sex ratio or the I think sex they're also version. I think they also see it as a way to uh, create more success for the family because they're they, I mean sexism is more of a thing over there than it is here and there's a lot more um, bias towards getting men in organizations and making more money and all that kind of stuff too so they say right. if we're gonna have a kid we want it to be as successful as possible let's have a boy and that's right, that like one sense. of the rationalizations. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just crazy. China has 
China has the world's most imbalanced sex ratio at birth, resulting in 30 million more men than women. And India, oh my God, 30 million dudes can't get a chick. That sucks. Uh, I'm sure that's India, producing a lot of mental issues as well and emotional issues. Oh, uh, oh yeah. Relationship and issues. Violence. And violence. Yeah. Yeah. And memes. Lots of memes. And memes. <laughs> and memes. Lots Good of memes. Call. Where was I? Where was I? Most imbalanced three. Okay. And India has the world's fourth most imbalanced ratio, despite government and private efforts to combat sex selective abortion. China and India have contributed to a worldwide lopsided sex ratio at birth of 107 boys per 100 girls and to over 160 million missing women globally. The natural sex ratio at birth when unaltered by sex selective abortion or infanticide is on average 105 boys to 100 girls. Cases of coercion, such as during the one-child policy and emergency alone, are sufficient reason to oppose neo-Malthusianism. By documenting the extent of the penalties and coercion, this paper seeks to demonstrate the grave importance of combating the resurgence of the neo-Malthusian mentality. Okay. The history of neo-Malthusianism. In 1978... English clergyman Thomas Robert Malthus published an essay on the principle of population as it affects the future improvement of society, warning that out-of-control population growth would deplete resources and bring widespread famine. His preferred solution was to decrease birth rates by delaying marriage, but if that proved insufficient, he endorsed extreme measures to slash population growth to prevent famine he thought it morally permissible to court the return of the plague. Dun, dun, dun. Hmm. Prince Philip, COVID, it's all coming together. By having the poor live in swamps <laughs> and even entertain the idea of banning specific remedies for ravaging diseases. Oh, you mean like ivermectin? Huh. Hmm, interesting. Malthus's disregard for the welfare of the poor in the name, and again, the poor. So again, eugenics sneaking its ugly little head in there, but not being named. Malthus's disregard for the welfare of the poor in the name of slowing population growth would prove an enduring part of overpopulation alarmism. After Malthus died, the Industrial Revolution transformed Western society. It created unprecedented prosperity. Food became more plentiful even as the population grew. Malthusianism seemed disproven. Moreover, increased wealth led to more funding for sanitation, hospitals, and education, and a decline in child mortality. That allowed for smaller family sizes and resulted in a decline in fertility. In the early 20th century, as mortality rates among the poor declined, the pseudoscientific eugenics movement emerged. It sought to prevent alleged inferior people from reproducing. Roughly 70,000 people were forcibly sterilized in the 20th century under eugenic legislation in the United States alone. Eugenicists and Malthusians 
often allied in policymaking, as they both believed that childbearing should be limited for people they deemed undeserving. In 1952, population control and family planning activist Margaret Sanger, y'all know who that is? No, Planned who's that? Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. Yeah, she's a eugenicist who started Planned Parenthood who was motivated by both eugenics, see her 1920 book, Women and the New Race, and Malthusianism, gave an, address in, gave an address in Mumbai. In her speech, she claimed that Mahatma Gandhi, the man who led India's successful campaign for independence from British rule, once told her that he supported limiting couples to four children to combat overpopulation. She opined, as population increases in any given territory, it encroaches upon all natural resources. Parenthood should be considered a privilege, not a right. Those who do not have the individual initiative and intelligence to plan and control the size of their families should be assisted, guided, and directed in every way to eliminate the undesirable offspring who usually contribute nothing to our civilization but use up the energy and resources of the world. And they have a little, uh, 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 they have a phrase that they like to refer to those of us who are inferior as useless eaters. The year she gave that address, Sanger founded the International Planned Parenthood Foundation a global non-governmental family planning organization that went on to provide technical assistance to China's coercive one-child program. The 1960s and 1970s saw a rapid global population growth <clears throat> as economic development and spread of medicine and scientific knowledge lowered mortality rates. During that time, Malthus's view became resurgent, replacing eugenics as the primary motivation behind population control policies. And again, remember, now we're in the 60s where it got real unpopular under Hitler. So it's like, ah, yeah, let's not talk about that anymore. <laughs> in 1960, world population reached 3 billion. By 1975, it reached 4 billion. Rich countries' governments started to fear that poor countries' burgeoning populations would deplete the world's limited resources. According to development economist Betsy Hartman of Hampshire College, neo-Malthusianism neo -Malthusianism was born. As early as 1959, the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations recommended that aid be given to developing countries who established programs to check population growth. In 1966, President Lyndon Johnson made U.S. foreign aid dependent on countries adopting population control policies. In 1967, Congress allocated $35 million via the United States Agency for International Development, the USAID, for, quote, population programs. In 1969, President Richard Nixon established, Richard Nixon established the Office of Population within the USAID that was dedicated to population control and had, $50 million and had a $50 million annual budget. In 1977, the head of that office, Remert Ravenholt, oh my God, what a horrible name, said he hoped to sterilize a quarter of the world's women. Wow, what a dick. 
The World Bank also made aid contingent on population control, embracing explicit demographic goals. In 1968, Stanford University biologist Paul Elric published The Population Bomb, a bestseller claiming that without population control, the world would run out of food. I remember this as a kid. I don't know if you guys remember this as a kid. I grew up in the 80s, and that was always a thing. We're going to run out of food. The world's going to, like, and actually, not only did we have the, the world's going to run out of food, we also had, and actually back then in the 80s, it was like, and the world's going to get super cold. It was before, before they took on the global warming, we had global cooling, that we were going to have an ice age by the year yeah. 2000. Like, yeah, the global, world will be frozen. Global cooling was a big thing in the 70s. Yeah, so climate crisis and overpopulation were, I remember, a big thing when I was a kid. So, back to it. (laughs) It just reminds me of when we had a huge snowstorm. I was like, talk about global warming, huh? Everybody's like, ugh, you don't get it. It's going to get colder because of global warming. And I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Then what if we got global climate? Now they just call it climate change. Yeah, they just call it climate change because they realized they were looking like idiots right right i mean it's honestly people have been talking about the weather as small talk for since we could talk and they've turned they've turned that and they've converted it into something to fear which is hysterical to me it's like it's like having a common colds now you know social distancing and stuff and and they've turned the common cold into something to to fear and they've they've turned the weather you know being the weather into something. I mean, if, if there was no climate change, the weather the weather channel wouldn't have a business. I mean, seriously. Well, I mean, that's, okay. So, FYI, the word climate implies change. That's all climate does is change. There wouldn't <laughs> even be a concept of climate if it didn't change. Right. It's been right. changing ever since the Earth started existing. You know, and they talk about like carbon levels. Dude, we've had carbon levels thousands times higher than they are now. We've had times in the Earth's history when the entire planet was a rainforest. It was tropical. There was no ice or snow anywhere. So, and there were no people to be the cause of it. Sounds nice. So, that's hilarious. It's, yeah. Paul Ehrlich published The Population Bomb, a bestseller claiming that without population control, the world would run out of food, fresh water, and other resources, and predicting mass starvation in the 1970s. That year, a representative of the Ford Foundation, a prominent American charity, came out in favor of mandatory sterilization after an allowable number of births. Also in 1968, a group of academics, politicians, and business people formed the Club of Rome. Yeah, 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 Club of Rome, anyone, mm. anyone? To focus on environmental problems. In 1972, the organization published an influential report, The Limits of Growth, that warned population growth could deplete resources and lead to a collapse of global society. The warning was based on computer simulations relying on dubious assumptions. <clears throat> In 1969, the UN launched the UNFPA, which we already talked about earlier, which promoted the view that population growth was at the root of environmental problems and poverty, blaming the world's poorest people in particular. So really, they never got rid of eugenics, but because it became such an embarrassment, 
they combined the philosophy of eugenics into Malthusianism. Because you can see they're always targeting specific groups of people. You know, even Bernie Sanders, he says, we need to start with the poorest countries. What's he saying? We need to start in Africa. Then we'll move to South America. We, we got to get rid of the brown people, basically. That's what it boils down to. Brown people, bad. We need to get rid of them. And this is acceptable. This is acceptable language because it's coded in a way that it's not overt racism. It's covert racism. Help me out with the motive here a little bit still. Why, why in eugenics, you know, rep, frame of reference, why would they want to kill off all these people? I get they're why? superior, but like, right. why kill the people that are producing I, I, all the shit? Well, well, because they don't need all the people to produce the shit. They look at most people as just consuming shit. They're also... Like, also oh, oh. Go ahead. Well, they're also positing that certain countries and groups of people don't produce things. They're, that's kind of the, the wink and the nod excuse is like, mm, you know, gotcha. Africa, Africa is not inventing spaceships. So why are you guys even on the planet? Right. That's kind of, <laughs> why you kind of, the, kind of the idea. Isn't it kind of true? Most people don't create shit. Uh, everybody Absolutely. creates something, but are they contributing to the world economy? I don't know. Probably not. They all, everyone contributes to the world economy because yeah. you consume. You consume and you produce. You know, now here's the thing that they've already planned it out in the, I mean, look at what Jane Goodall said, right? World population should be around four, 500 million people. That is their target, that is their goal. And why is that such a spectacular number? Well, because they can easily control a planet of 500 million people, whereas 7 billion, you know, again, a lot more people. A, a little lot out of control. control. <laughs> yeah. And, and they fear not being in control. This is everything, in, everything we're talking about here is all driven by fear. The, these elites, the most powerful people in the world, they're fucking chicken shits. They're fucking cowards. And they're afraid. That's why they seek control because they're cowards. The, yeah, the, the joke, the grand joke here is that they actually don't produce anything, right? They're, administra <laughs> exactly. they're administrators, right? And, they, and what they're trying to do is what they, eliminate what they see as competition. And it's funny because, I mean, what, seriously, how many or, politicians? Go ahead. Is it, is it potentially that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think from the viewpoint of I'm entitled to everything under the sun and I'm elite. Everybody else is this, you know, subhuman, we'll call it. And I would then take responsibility for managing the planet, being like, well, guys, if we're going in this direction, if we kill off a couple billion people, then, you know, maybe that means that we can make some uh, something somewhere else. You know what I mean? And so if I were to take that on and really not care about the cattle, if you will, then I could understand how trimming the fat would, would be easier to control, easier to manage, easier to whatever their goal is. Like that's the, the piece that I'm missing. I understand some of the motives that they would have people, somebody would have to do that, but 
the end goal at say 500 million people, is that just the easiest number to control and maintain what growth and evolution as a species or providing them with everything their families need or like what from is the what? from the guidestones themselves it's to maintain balance that's that's what they say balance with of what with the environment okay. man with the men with the environment you know and i i have a unpopular opinion about the george guidestones but i'll save it hmm so that's the theory is that there's a particular balance of some amount of people on the planet that comes into harmony with Nature. You guys, again, you guys should join their team because what you're you're giving the talking points of the justification doesn't make it any sense. Have you ever been in a plane? Have you ever you y'all been in planes, right? Yeah, man. Like like an aeroplane. (laughs) Yeah, like an aeroplane. You ever flown over this country? Yeah, it's all. It's all. It's a lot of land. Exactly. A lot, a lot of land. Of empty land, a lot of a lot forest, of yeah, a lot of mountains. And this is how every country is. Okay? There is no there is no limit to resources. Human the human population takes up a tiny little small little fraction. Didn't they say something like the entire world's population could fit inside Texas? Yeah, it's true. And it's funny, it, it's 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 funny that you say that because um, really the, the resource we're talking about is human labor. It's not even ingenuity. More people, I mean, ingenuity is great, but more, more people working the land, more people planting and harvesting, simply that. I mean, you, you lay down a pound of wheat and you harvest 10 pounds. And that's, that's just plain old sweat of your brow work. And that's producing. And then, you know, you've got times the amount you can plant later. I think, I think, I think, Human capital, to use a terrible term, but human labor and human resources, which is also terrible. But I I think it's more about. um, I think that that's the missing component, and that's why that's why the Malthusian math doesn't work because uh, all it takes is just you know a small chunk of land, and people can generally provide for themselves, barring any catastrophic event, and just just simple swinging a hammer working doing something that's enough you don't have to be like elon musk and invent you know food replicators or whatever you 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 can just work and i think that's the thing they're so afraid of that's that's why i I mean i read i read a lot about um robert malthus and it struck me that this guy i come from a big family and he did too but he was the youngest or he was one of the youngest kids in his family and if you the youngest kids always get especially the one just before the youngest always kind of get the short end of the stick, right? They're, they're, they're the ones who are kind of the older ones are getting all the attention and then they leave the house and the youngest ones getting all the attention. This poor guy was stuck in the middle and he came from a, he came from a family of, of independent means and he joined the clergy, which was fairly typical for somebody at, at his, how do you put this on? Like the firstborns would inherit the, the estate and then, you know, each kid had would have a each each boy would have a have a discipline, and he joined the the clergy. And it's funny just to kind of kind of read about him and the company he kept and how he thought. I mean, this is very typical. the The next to youngest kid raised in a big family is always going to think there are too many people. Always, it's just natural. 
right? I mean, I, hell, I remember thinking when my kid, when my parents were having popping out kids after me, I was like, man, mom and dad, because I didn't know how they did it at the time, and I was like, why do you guys? Why don't you guys just stop making babies? Like, come on, I mean, it's not. <laughs> dinners are getting smaller. The house is getting more crowded. So he grew up with that. That was formative for him, and right. a lot so, of this. So basically, yeah. Robert Malthus has issues. Right. <laughs> right. He has, he has mental issues, and he was raised to prominence because his mental issues le uh, lent to him having an opinion about population and controlling it. Right. Um, and he had and, and he had that, the ear. Yeah. He had the ear of even people. if there wouldn't have even if there wouldn't have been a Malthus, this was already a driving force in society. You know, yeah. um, even before Darwin, right? Because they just latched onto Darwin's theories to say, uh, to like kind of propel their eugenics ideas. Like, oh, you know, evolution of the species. We're clearly the most evolved because we have the most money, right? <laughs> and, and that's clearly a sign of evolution is money. Um, and so they just latched on to his ideas and used them to propel their their philosophy the eugenics philosophy um so again with or without malthus with or without his fucked up childhood we'd be you'd be we'd be looking at the same shit it's not like had malthus not come along had malthus been an only child we wouldn't be looking at this no we'd still be looking at this it'd still be the same theory um and there would still be the actions being taken on i think we what you have to boil it down to is like it's really it when it when it when all is said and done, it comes down to control. And the population is at a point where they fear losing control of it. I mean, you're seeing that right now with the collapse. Because it got of so big. Narrative. Yeah. It's it, it the, their narratives are collapsing. You know, they they fear not being able to control our money systems, not being able to control the world itself. And so that fear drives them to the point of, well, we need to do something about this. We need to eliminate people. And we need to, they need to justify it so that looking back, people will say, yeah, it had to be done. <laughs> you know, it had to be done. World population was at 7 billion. I mean, they would have been out of food by 2030. You know, even though they said we were going to be out of food in 1970, they said we we're going to be out of food in 1980, said we we're going to be out of food in 1990, they said we we're going to be out of food in 2000. They've been saying we're going to run out of food since I was a young child. And we haven't. And we're not going to. And they've been saying that the, the climate is going to kill us all and that it's all our fault. They've been saying that since I was a little kid. And it won't. And it hasn't. So back to the article. In 1969, the UN launched UNFPA, which promoted the view that population growth was the root of environmental problems and poverty, blaming the world's poorest people in particular. The bottom billion often imposed greater environmental injury than all other people put together, the UNFPA said in 1992. <laughs> Did they literally just blame poverty on poor people? No, they blamed the uh, they blamed the environmental problems on poor people. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know because they've got all the machines, they've got all the industrial. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> they, 
They don't. So the population growth was at the root it. of environmental problems and no, poverty. The poor, yes. Blaming the, in, the poorest, yes. world's poorest people in particular. Yes, the bottom billion, poorest. <laughs> okay, the bottom wow. billion are off, often wow. impose greater environmental injury than all other people put together. UNFPA said in 1992. Increasingly prominent neo-Malthusians spoke of a war on population growth, notes Matthew Connolly, a historian at Columbia University. The war would entail sacrifices and collateral damage, Connolly wrote. Poor countries were pressed to accept population programs, and rich countries were expected to pay for them. By the 1970s, USAID contributed over half the budget of the IPPF, which again, that's Planned Parenthood, and the UNFPA, and contributed substantial amounts to the Population Council and similarly-minded groups. Facing pressure from officials in international organizations and rich countries who prioritize the wooing of national elites in developing countries to their cause, through concerted campaigns and generous funding, many policymakers in poor countries came around to the view that population growth caused resource scarcity. Okay, so let's, un let's unpack that for a second. Uh, we went into these countries, gathered up the elite of these poor countries, and promised them money, and then they came to the conclusion that, yeah, yeah, population is pro a problem. We need to do something about this. Give us that money. <laughs> Between 1976 and 1996, neo-Malthusian sentiments became more widespread, and the number of governments viewing their citizenries' fertility levels as too high increased from 55 to 87. Over the same period, the number of governments pursuing policies to lower the rate of population growth grew from 39 to 71. Overwhelmingly, it was poor countries that were expected to curb their populations. So again, there it is in black and white. It is eugenics. The increasing popularity, bleh, bleh, the increasingly popular goal of lowering the population justified coercive policies in the minds of some scholars. In 1970, ecologist Garrett Hardin opined at a meeting con convened by the Population Council, quote, it would be much easier if we have a persuasive campaign first to prepare the way for coercion later. By 1978, in a survey of Population Association of America members, 34% of respondents agreed that coercive birth control programs should be initiated in at least some countries immediately. By the 1980s, the background document to the International Conference on Family Planning co-written by the UNFPA and the IPPF and Population Council, decreed when provisions of con contraceptive information and services does not bring down the fertility level quickly enough to help speed up development, governments may decide to limit the freedom of choice of the present generation. Many people saw coercion as acceptable because the overpopulation problem was deemed so urgent. In, in a 1991 interview with UNESCO Courier, the famed oceanographer Jacques Cousteau opined that humanity should not try to cure diseases because population, quote, must be stabilized. And to do that, we must eliminate 350,000 people per day. 
God damn, Jacques ruthless. Dude, that's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. In 1994, at its International Conference on Population and Development, the UN declared the intensified efforts were crucial to stabilize to the to stabilization of the world population. <clears throat> In 2002, the UNFPA stated its mission to be the universally accepted aim to stabilizing world population, to protect the natural resources on which all life depends, but its use of the word stabilization was misleading because it was a euphemism for lowering the population. Nafis Sadik, a former executive director of the UNFPA, uh, Is that a euphemism for thing. euphemism? <laughs> euphemism. The euphemism for euphemism. Clarified that stabilization meant stabilizing of world population at the lowest possible level within the shortest period of time. Okay. Groups that declared that declared commitment to stabilizing the population included the Sierra Club, an environmental organization, as well as charitable foundations such as the Ford Foundation the Hewlett Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Packard Foundation, and the Rockefeller Foundation. Shocker. Just, hey, guys. Doctrine. Go ahead. I was, I was going to say, uh, it, was, it was the Hewlett Foundation and the, and the Packard Foundation. The, that was before they joined and became Hewlett and Packard, which is now Hewlett Packard. Right. Right. The computer guys. Fun fact. Brilliant. Malthusian doctrine among international organizations, uh, government leaders, and philanthropies became widespread. Through these groups, neo-Malthusians exerted moral pressure, sought converts to their cause, and offered financial incentives, rewarding governments in poor countries that enacted population control measures while sounding no alarms if those measures became coercive. The results were catastrophic. Consider China and India. How Neo-Malthusianism came to China. In a Helsinki publication in 1978, a Dutch professor, Geert, Geert Jan Oldster, and a Chinese mathematician, Song Jian, sat down together for a beer. Oldster mentioned the Club of Rome's Limits of Growth report and ignited a messianic fervor for population control in Jian that would shape China's future. His eyes lit up, recalled, recalled Ulster, who maintained that all things equal, the world should do the same as China and have a one-child policy. During a visit to Europe in 1978, I happened to learn about the application of systems analysis by European scientists to the study of population problems with great success. Jean wrote of the encounter, I was extremely excited and determined to try the method. He did not stop at limits to growth. He also read Malthus. When I was thinking about this, I took Malthus's book to research the study of population. Limits to growth. Okay, Remember, limits to growth is the book. The, or the, the paper by the Club of Rome, Limits to Growth, not only promoted Malthus's ideas or idea that a large population creates uh, resource scarcity, but it also promoted the notion that planners could use systems analysis 
meaning mathematical procedures to compute a country's sustainable population size. In 1978, Jian calculated that China's ideal population was between 650 million and 700 million. Well, that means he's got to kill half his population. Or 280 million to 330 million fewer than its population at the time. Jian translated the Club of Rome's central arguments, but none of the circulating critiques of the Club of Rome's methodology into Mandarin. He also published his own findings inspired by the Club of Rome's approach. Jian has highly was highly respected for previous work on ballistic missiles, and he soon persuaded China's elite of an urgent population crisis, necessitating forceful population control. Harvard University anthropologist Susan Greenhalf, Greenhalf's book, Just One Child, Science and Policy in Deng's China, chronicles Jian's successful campaign to spread neo-Malthusian fears among China's elite, despite opposition from rival government factions. Population control <clears throat> became an integral part of the country's socialist modernization efforts, culminating in the one-child policy. Thus, the neo-Malthusian quote, crisis mentality and the top-down engineering-type solutions to the crisis made their way to China, Greenhoff wrote. Not only was the intellectual impetus for China's coercive population control policies decidedly neo-Malthusian, but organizations such as the UNFPA, the IPPF, provided support for the one-child policy. The UNFPA opened an office in Beijing in 1979 and pledged $50 million for population policy in China over the next four years. It stipulated that the money was in part to fund training for 70,000 family planning workers and an extensive campaign <clears throat> promoting smaller family sizes. The Chinese state-run association responsible for implementing the one-child policy became an IPPF member in 1983. Again, that's the International Planned Parenthood Foundation. International support for the one-child policy consisted of both intellectual and moral encouragement, as well as financial support, that even when not ostensibly funding coercion, freed resources to support the one-child policy. For example, every dollar in aid, money spent on training, family planning workers, or in educational campaigns freed Chinese funds that could go toward non-consensual procedures. UNFPA grants went to training and equipping the people who would go on to carry out coerced procedures. The UNFPA also paid for many of the computers used to calculate birth quotas. Chinese funds that would otherwise have gone to buying computers or teaching family planning workers how to perform abortions and sterilizations were thus made available to fund the one-child policies enforcement, including the collection of fines and performing coerced abortions and forced sterilizations. Okay, so I'm going to summarize the rest of this because it, it goes on in China for a while. And basically from 1974, 1979 through 2015, you basically had this god-awful policy where they were not only forcing sterilization, forcing abortions, they were forcing IUDs that could not be removed without surgery. And again, they did this for, gosh, what is that, 15, 10, 20, so 35 36 years. Um, and I imagine the effects not only on 
the population, but on the psyche of the people. Because in, in the paper, it goes into like some, just some of the desperate things that were happening in and around China at that time, where people were uh, having their children and then leaving their children at someone's house who didn't have children, you know, to like, so that the child could live. Because the policy, like, if you already had a kid and they fit, and all of a sudden you had another kid, they would take the kid away. Um, they would, they would, uh, they had policies in place that were just brutal towards women, towards men, towards children. So it, it gets pretty gruesome. If you want to go into the details of that, I suggest you, uh, click on the link, read the rest of this paper. Um, I'm gonna, I'll go in a little bit of India, I guess, but I mean, it just goes on. There's so much that happened in China and it was, it was even more brutal than India, but I'm going to touch on a little bit of what happened in India as well. So here we go. How Neo-Malthusianism came to India. Following the, a big population jump revealed in 1962 census, India became one of the pioneers of population control in developing countries. As Neo-Malthusianism gained popularity among elected officials in the U.S. government and in international organizations, it inspired those officials to support India in its population control efforts. The campaign to spread Neo-Malthusian ideas among India's policymakers long preceded the emergency. Now, whenever you hear the word emergency, it's a capital. It's capitalized. This is the, what the prime minister of India called it. She called it an emergency, right? Um, and so they, that's, all, that's how they refer to it throughout the papers, just the emergency, right? Um, preceded the emergencies for sterilizations. From the United States, both the Johnson and Ford administrations in encouraged India's Prime Minister Gandhi to pursue population control more aggressively. A now declassified U.S. National Security Council memorandum from 1974 by then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger makes explicit the U.S. quote aim for the world to achieve a two-child family on average by about the year 2000, and identifies India as a key country that the United States, through aid and through UN agencies, should assist with the goal of population moderation. The memorandum urges explicit consideration of mandatory programs. The memorandum claims that population control is needed to prevent Malthusian conditions from many regions of the world and classic Malthusian cases with families involving millions of people. The report quotes the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi claiming that India Malthusian pressures are already being felt. Western population professionals thronged to India's capital in the 1960s, backing surveys, doling out research grants, prostitutes, Neo-Malthusianism and training many of India's demographers, doctors, and public health professionals in conjunction with India's elite. Western organizations helped design and bankroll policies such as sterilization targets aimed at curbing the fertility of the country's poor. By the 1960s, U.S. government, UNFPA, Ford Foundation, the World Bank accounted for most of the $1.5 billion in annual aid that India received. In 1974, the UNFPA issued its largest grant ever to India, 
1976, the Swedish Development Authority loaned India $60 million for, quote, family planning, some of which ultimately funded coerced procedures. Between 1972 and 1980, the World Bank loaned India $66 million for population control. Upon returning from a visit to India in 1976 during the emergency, then World Bank President Robert McNamara declared, at long last, India is moving to effectively address its population problem, noting without alarm coercive policies, including, in his words, compulsory abor abortion and sterilization laws. These people are championing this shit. They're applauding it. Compulsory abortion and sterilization laws. The Population Council sent Sheldon Siegel, the head of its biomedical division, to New Delhi, where he served as personal advisor to Indian Armed Forces Lieutenant Colonel B.L. Reyna, India's Director of Family Planning. In 1969, the former, advocate, the former advocated sex-selective abortion as a means of population control, despite no political support for it at the time. The Ford Foundation soon allocated 63,000... 63,000 to the All India Institute. That's got to be a wrong number. <laughs> 63,000 um, to the All India Institute of Medical Science, a prestigious public medical college on top of earlier grants of 1.7 million and Rockefeller Grant Foundation grants of 1.5 million by 1975. AIIMS presented research that advanced sex selective abortion as a means of population control. And there are reports of doctors encouraging pregnant patients to abort female fetuses because population control was deemed so urgent. So again, this sex selectivity and encouraging the abortion of females in keeping of males, that actually works into the population control agenda. So I'm wondering how much of this is the actual families choosing this because clearly india they were pushing it keep the males get rid of the females well why is that well because females are the ones who have kids <laughs> you know like like if you've got 30 million males that don't have a mate well that's 30 million less people because they will not breed so it's it's key to limit women and it's in what's so interesting about like if we look at some of these uh, cases in India and in Africa where you had sterilization by way of vaccine, it was always happening to women. Okay, so this, again, this is the attack on women and children because that is the key to controlling population. Okay, so I'm going to skip through the emergency again. If you want to read on the details of uh, India's adventures in population control uh, suggest you pick up this paper, click on the link, and read it. And here I am skipping forward. I'm on Neo Malthusianism, <clears throat> sorry, Neo Malthusian policies today involving coercion and disincentives. While the worst human rights abuses of Neo Malthusianism, are in the past. Troubling policies inspired by those ideas persist. China, and to much lesser extent India, continue to provide examples. China relaxed its one-child policy into a two-child policy in 2016, and now encourages married couples to have a second child. But having three or more children is still illegal. 
In most provinces, women must still undergo periodic state-mandated pregnancy tests. Would-be parents must seek birth permits, and single motherhood remains illegal. Those who fail to comply may face exorbitant fines, job termination, detention, coerced sterilization, or coerced abortion. While a far cry from the abuses of the past, even in democratic India, half the country's population lives in states that penalize families with more than two children. And political representation is apportioned in a way that punishes states with high birth rates. So that's also a way of turning, your po turning the population against itself, right? Uh, uh, if you're penalized in your representation because of the birth rate in your community, it will actually turn the community members against each other. You know, if, if there's someone in your community who's got three kids, well, they're the bad people, right? And where's our conclusion? We're going to skip through China today. Again, it's pretty much all the same policies, except now you can have two kids. But really, what I want to tie this into is what we're seeing in what's happening now with the push for these climate policies, because they're, they, although you don't hear a lot of talk about it, they're on the table and they will be put, being pushed. And, you know, the carbon footprints and the lockdowns that we think are just for, you know, virulent diseases that have just short of 100% survival rate, um, they, these are planned as, to be a part of the climate control crisis as well. And these neo-Malthusian ideas are already embedded in the climate conversation. So these policies may be brutal the way that they're playing out in India and China, but these policies will be everywhere. This is the plan. And in fact, I would go so far as to say is we're actually experiencing the policy now. You know, in, the, in some of the statements that we read above, they even mentioned, you know, the use of disease or the withholding of medication as a justified method of controlling the population. So when people are racking their brains, like, well, why would they not let people get ivermectin? Well, because they want you dead. And quite possibly because they want you sterilized. Do we have any idea how effective that may have been so far? Because I'm hearing yeah, hardly in, anything. In in what what what's been effective? What what are you asking? Like the goal was to cut it down to several hundred million from several billion. I would imagine yeah, well, we, we would see a lot more death than what we've seen, and a lot more infertility than we've seen. You you haven't seen the infertility yet. It's brand new. These guys these guys are playing the long game. I mean, if if it's if you're talking about you know reducing a population, they're not going to do it immediately. I mean, if something like this started happening, and and uh, and this is I mean, it's a running well, gag. It, in reality, it, if you did want to do it immediately, it would be through a disease, right? Because or, or, trying or. to reduce 
trying to trying to uh, remove, delete six and a half billion people through the policies that we just talked about happening in India and China, uh, that would be brutal. That would right. be brutal because it would right. be basically completely sterilizing billions of people, forced sterilization, because not many people volunteer for that shit. Okay, so you're talking about, and that, so that is, that, that's a clearly a brutal policy that would, that would turn everyone against their governments. However, if we can make it appear as though like, oh my God, it's this thing that we all, we don't have any control over, right? It's a sustainable right. progress. Right. Yeah. It, let me, yeah. Let me read the, let me read the conclusion part of this paper and then we'll go into well, that particular topic of the, the, the relationship to what we'll call medical policy today. Word. Every family deserves the right to decide for themselves how many children, if any, they wish to have free of government meddling. Neo-Malthusian concerns, both historical, historically and today, have been used to justify restricting that right, sometimes violently, by punishing those who diverge from an alleged ideal family size, determined by technocrats. Neo-Malthusian policies in China and, to a lesser extent, India, both encroach upon personal freedom and contribute to the problems of sex-selective abortion in female infanticide thus skewing the global sex ratio at birth. Evidence suggests that population growth can coincide with increasing abundance of natural resources and does not necessarily lead to scarcity, and that birth rates are declining dramatically across much of the world without coercion. While the height of Neo-Malthusianism hopefully lies in the past, and China may finally be moving away from heavy-handed population control, such ideas may be seeing a resurgence in India and elsewhere. Combating neo-Malthusian doctrine remains critical as long as coercive population policies persist anywhere in the world. And that's it. Great paper, Chelsea Follett, and this is from the Cato Institute. So... In hearing all that, like to me, it was crystal clear. Well, I mean, before I read that paper, it's crystal clear to me <laughs> that, that we're, we're experiencing a population controlled drive right now everywhere. Like to me, that's obvious. Jinji, kind of an answer to your earlier question, if they had decided to just start nuking people left and right uh at least in this country they have a they have this pesky issue of more guns per capita than what is it i think it's a couple of guns per person in this country yeah i, I think we have over 500 million firearms <laughs> yeah that's right. something ridiculous right right but that's the thing these policies are instituted often locally which means those those pol these policies have a face so it could be some city council member or some health bureaucrat or something that strokes the paper, that puts a signature on the paper. That's so dangerous because now for them, not for us, well, I mean, for us too, but you know what I mean? For them, it's, 
it's extremely dangerous because now there's a there's a I don't know a, a chain of custody there. You can hunt up hunt up that pyramid up that chain and find out you know who's the boss of the boss of the boss. And if everybody's armed and trained, well, that's that's a problem for people trying to sneak this stuff in. So it's it's got to be softer, and it's got and they're playing again. They're playing the long game. Many of these people who promote this stuff um, live for they live a good long time. You know how how old's the queen? What is she like a million now? Um, a lot of these folks. One hundred thirty-seven years old. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So these people live a good long time. They they know. They're basically planting the tree that their children, their, I'm sorry, their their superior children, or their, let's use the royal term, their issuance will will live under. You know, they're not going to live to see this stuff. So that's kind of that's kind of the big reason. And 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 it's it's I don't want to say funny, but everything's funny to me. We're seeing a great example of this in Australia. So back in was it 1978, 82, some like late 70s, early 80s, Australia had a gun buyback. And now there's all kinds of fun footage coming out of Australia of, you know, cops macing people for their health, right? Uh, Beating the crap out of them. Brutally beating them. Right, for their health. This is for your health. We care about your health. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, go home. Right. Shit out of you. I'm going to beat the shit out of you till you're healthy. Right. And it it strikes me as funny, too, because back in the day, one of the, one of the, examples of manliness was crocodile dundee you know now that's a knife right that guy and here we have a whole is it an island a subcontinent we've got the whole, whole subcontinent of people who really pose no threat to the people saying i'm going to punch you in the face to make to to make you not i'm going to punch the COVID out of you right and i think that's i think that's a big reason it's so slow and i'm seeing and i'm 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 mildly suspicious but um, I'm seeing a lot of, cause I'm interested in, you know, weaponry. I'm not going to go much further than that, but I'm seeing a lot of policies change in States. Um, when it comes to things like open carry or concealed, concealed weaponry and stuff like that, I'm seeing a lot of that change in the favor of people who have, have guns. And I'm, at first I'm like, Oh, that's, that's cool. It means less paperwork. If you want to get, get a gun and go to the range, but or hunt or whatever you do with it, but on the other hand, it it smell. I suddenly got the whiff of something like maybe maybe they're setting people up for a civil war. I mean, they're screaming about all this white supremacy and this domestic terrorism. If everybody has guns, that's just that's just a wind up for a pitch, right? That's a that's a Hegelian little uh, little game they're playing. But anyway, it's it's that so- would make sense. That would make sense to me more than. Um, you know, like say the you know COVID as a population control mechanism, because I, if it, I mean, it's obvious now that it, this thing was manufactured. This was created in a lab, multi, like messed with to the point where we could then release it. I don't, I don't know specifically if it was intentionally let go or accidentally or whatever. Beside the point to me, but it has been virtually non-impactful as far as deaths on the planet even the numbers that are being toted are again again not that big a deal yeah but you're missing it what the virus isn't isn't the tool it's the fucking vaccine you will see a lot more deaths believe me you will see a lot more deaths but what that's 
that's secondary. Yeah, I see. I see. That there's also sterilization. Like the spike protein via the gra- uh, graphene oxide, mm. you know, not only makes its way into the ovaries, and therefore it like now these spike proteins attach to the egg. So every time an egg is released, it will not attach, even if it's fertilized, will not attach to the uterus. It will flush out because the body sees it as a threat. It sees it as disease. Like why kill off half the population when you could make more than half infertile and affect generations to come? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's, and both because I'm going to offer a counterpoint to Nick's, uh, point of the long game it's they they used to play a long game they're on the short game now oh yeah yeah there's yeah there's a level of desperation that is apparent yeah you can smell it yeah this would be something that would typically be rolled out over 30 or 50 years this is desperation they are pushing really pushing really hard and they're really desperate yeah and so yeah and and i and i don't think we're going to be limited to to this being the only mechanism for population control i think Mm -hmm. we'll see other things i think we'll see uh events right uh what we we may see war we may see many things that can be used to decimate population Nick, you gotta you gotta mute when you slamming on your keyboard. You gotta buy a sneaky silent so, keyboard. Bro. So sorry about that. <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, I totally. It, it does. They do. It it does reek of desperation, and you'll and you'll see a lot of it in in media. It's funny that in that the that article is full of it's full of keywords. Every word is loaded, and every word has a meaning meaning to everybody else, and even a legal meaning in many cases. And they use they use terms like stabilizing a uh, stabilizing a population, or the Georgia Guidestones use balance. And it's funny because there was a whole series of movies made by Marvel Studios about a bad guy who killed half of the the global Earth global the universe population. So yeah, everything, <laughs> yeah, right, right. So everything. He, what did he say? He hands he hands his daughter the knife, and he's like, "It's perfectly balanced as all three things should be." And that that became a meme, and it's funny, but it's also very, very telling. Like he he had this yeah. this zealotry around, uh, around the idea, and they, and they, and he sells it too. He said like he spends so long in monologues about how his his planet had all these resources and all the people ate up all the resources and everybody was sad. And he's he's just trying to prevent all that suffering. You know, you don't suffer if you're dead if you're dead, right? Like like. Like what you said earlier in the chat, Brandon, you're like, you can't, if you're, what was your quote? It was it's really funny. You go, you go, if there's, if there's no point in saving lives, if you outlaw living, it's the same, yeah. the same spirit, right? It's, it's the same thing. So, you know, and, and, and people use that same argument for abortion too. You know, that, that kid is not going to be raised in a loving family. So why should he be born anyway? And to Brandon's point, when it comes to innovation, that kid could be the, the doctor that cures cancer or cure or cures AIDS or whatever <laughs> he, he could be, but you know, he's now he's in pieces on a, on a tray table in some abortion clinic. So it's, 
I mean, I, well, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. Anyway, but yeah, it's um, it's it's something. And and Brandon's right. They they are desperate. They they're they're broadcasting this. Uh, they're telegraphing it, to use a boxing term. They're telegraphing it a lot. And it, it might, yeah, it might take like Thanos level threats where it's not just a cold. I honest, I feel like the the uh, the coronavirus was a cold was a uh, a dry run, right? They're kind of seeing, um, kind of seeing who who does what, and kind of breaking people up into groups. And uh, I think, I mean, if and I think I've said this before, if it were me, if I mean, if I were evil, and I'm not guys I, I'm, I promise i'm not but if i were evil what i would do is i would release this like i would create this media fiasco this um this marketing campaign around the common cold figure out where people stand and who you know will take horse paste and who will take the jab and whatever else and then when all the tensions are super high and you've got people in definite camps who would never take a jab release something that's actually deadly and then you know, the problem solves itself, as far as the elite or whoever we're talking about goes, if the problem solves itself, then you got people who are crazy, never going to take a jab that could actually save their lives. You've got a jab that is a gamble. It could be saline solution. It could be the actual uh, vaccine, or it could be, you know, full of gra graphene, right? And they're when they do that, I think they're also creating plausible deniability. So they, they talk about this a lot when they... Uh, when they talk about vaccine deaths and reactions, I mean, apart from the obvious meme of people who are like more morbidly obese dying and because they quote unquote didn't get the vaccine and now either their dying words is, I wish I had gotten the vaccine and their families, you know, kind of wishing that they didn't visit McDonald's so much. And they're like, <laughs> maybe you should have lost some weight. Right. Right. And, and uh, I mean, did, 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 did the person die of, obesity in that the obesity complicated things or you know i mean there if if coronavirus killed them the flu could have killed them given their bodily condition so i think they're creating they're creating plausible deniability and they don't they kind of don't um they kind of don't uh they i mean it really doesn't matter though because these these companies that make the vaccines are uh immune to lawsuits right it goes to arbitration there's a whole fund around that you can't actually sue a vaccine manufacturer but yeah they're creating a level of plausible deniability where you can't you can't you know, correlation doesn't equal causation you know trust the science so it's it's a whole it's kind of a clusterfuck and it's really interesting to me i mean from a from a distance because i live in a rural red state so no everybody here just they'll they'll openly you know they'll openly laugh at people wearing masks so that's that's kind of where i am but in other places it's rough it's really rough yeah i've seen that too we fixed the glitch In the Matrix? <laughs> it's from uh, Office Space. No, 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 no. We, 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 we like to avoid confrontation whenever possible. So we oh, yeah. <laughs> he won't be receiving a paycheck anymore. <laughs> we didn't fire him. You know, we figure he'll stop getting a paycheck. He'll stop showing up. 
Fix All right, guys. We fixed the glitch. Anyone else want to chime in on this? Miss Sandbell like joined us for the first time, breathing ecstasy. <laughs> yes, I am. This is very interesting. Thank you so much. Hello, my dear. Thanks for joining us. All righty. Well, we're, uh, that was good. That was good, nice and short and concise, and we can wrap it there. I feel like I've, I've hit all the points I wanted to hit. Um, well, let's talk real quick before we go about some, you know, actionable stuff. It's one thing to know that this is a goal of some powerful people out there, but yeah, resist, <laughs> resist, don't do it. <laughs> resist, yeah. resist. That's all you can do at this point. Like, Oh, and have kids, <laughs> have kids and resist. Um, like that's, uh, I mean, that's, it, it's, we have to stand firm and call it out for what it is. You know, like, I mean, I don't even remember, like when I was reading through that paper, I don't even remember that when I read it the first time, I didn't even, like it didn't click for me, the withholding of medication and I mean, that's what we're seeing. They're withholding treatments. And these well, one thing are effective. One thing I've noticed is that like, like, you know, Nick was saying, this has been part of a longer game as well. And when I take a step back and I look at how like the pharmaceutical industry has affected healthcare and our population in general. I'm like, well, yeah, it's like at some point we stopped prioritizing wellness and we started prioritizing profits and power and, and all kinds of other stuff. And so it's not ever really been about preservation of life. Like we've talked about Brandon, where like, if you were really a pro-life advocate, you would be standing up against the death penalty to be standing up against, you know, alcoholism <laughs> and all kinds of, you know, things that are ways of people dying earlier than they would without them. And as long as it's a slow enough death, we're kind of okay with it, but too fast is too much, something like that. Anyway, um, understanding this greater perspective that this is an actual agenda that exists in the world it to me inspires responsibility for my own health instead of looking to a pharmaceutical company or a medical professional or um you know a, a miracle vaccine or something just understanding my body and uh, and how it thrives and giving it what it needs rest and nutrition and you know stuff like that uh hydration is huge and doing what i can to take full responsibility for my health is to me more powerful, more sustainable, more effective than having to then go out and deal with, you know, if I did get COVID at this point, it probably wouldn't affect me as, as much as it would affect the, you know, the Wendy's eaten Dunkin' Donuts eaten, um, whoa, no whoa, exercising whoa. type person. Don't disparage us donut eaters. Brand Brandon's in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Uh, 
in all reality, Brandon does eat all that shit. Right? I mean, except for Wendy's. <laughs> no, I don't eat that food. But I, I, I do, I do indulge. Just fast in donuts. Yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, uh, now, and I, and I, I'll cut back because you know I eat, I eat really healthy, ninety nine percent of the time, and uh, because I've been volunteering at this church where I'm doing their live stream and everything, um, they have donuts. So I've been having donuts every Sunday. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like, ah, you have to, like, whereas before it was like once every two or three months, I would get some pastries or something. Now it's like every Sunday I'm getting donuts. Um, so it's plural. It's, it's hurt. It's hurting. Yeah. It's, oh yeah. Cause I can't do just one. Um, well, they're, they're, they're like, they're blessed, right? It, of course they're holy donuts. Oh, holy donuts. Um, hashtag. Hashtag holy donut. Um, but yeah, there it's, <laughs> I, I do concur. I, I do think you're right that personal responsibility and health is absolutely essential. Um, underst- like even doing the due diligence of understanding your, your immune system <clears throat> and what contributes to a healthy immune system, um, you know, from everything from having gut, you know, healthy gut flora to, uh, not having vitamin and mineral deficiencies and things like that to also being aware and conscious of what depletes or harms your immune reactions. Um, that's important. Like relying on businesses whose business it is for you to be sick, to tell you what you should be doing with your health is probably not the best idea. Um, and then when you consider that the policies, what we call the, the healthcare policies and the um, bureaucrats behind these various agencies that dictate healthcare policies and regulations, and you see that they're all heavily vested in these companies that produce the vaccines and things like that, it's like, okay, can I really trust what these people are saying? You know, and for me, it, you know, it's a hard no. It's always been a hard no. <laughs> like this, for me, it's not a new phenomenon. I'm not like new to the I don't trust pharmaceutical companies uh, conversation. That's a conversation I've had for over 20 years. So it's for me, it's not new. But because I've been in that conversation, it's also been a part of my habits to research and understand like my hormone balances, my gut flora, my immune system, um, how to maintain health. And like, that's, that's just been because I don't rely on anyone outside of myself for that. It's been a part of my own habits in life to, to, to find information, to research information, to, and to, you know, not only that, but also to, I've learned, how to read a study, you know? Um, and I mean, t- learning to read an article would be great, you know, cause most people don't get past the headlines. I know me and Gingy have had several conversations within the last couple of weeks where it's like, there'll be a headline that says one thing and then you read the article and it actually contradicts the assertion of the headline, you know? And, but most people don't get past the headline, right? TLDR. You know, they, they, they read the headline and they take it as gospel and they're like, Oh, well, that must be what it is. You know, too lazy. Didn't and, or, read. And, and, and then go beyond the article. 
because the article is going to cite sources because sometimes the article will make some assertions about something and they'll go, oh, based on this scientific paper, that scientific paper, and you go read the scientific paper and it comes to the opposite conclusions that they came to in the article. You know, mm-hmm. so it's, you, it, it, that's responsibility. That's taking responsibility for your own health and well-being. is, you know, reading, reading into it deeply. But, but this seems to be something that is, has been a growing general theme of ours. And I just, I keep saying it every single call that we have, but I'm re- recognizing even more so tonight that this isn't just about taking responsibility for your own health and, and whatever else. It's also taking responsibility for your own beliefs. It's taking responsibility for, um, you know, everything in life. Like if you go to a preacher and he's telling you what the Bible says and you've never read the Bible, you're just taking his interpretation of it, you've never actually taken responsibility for your religion. Same thing as if you're always going to a doctor and doing what the doctor says is right for your body and you've never once listened to your body or you share all the headlines and you never read the studies. You're taking other people's information at face value. There's sort of a divide right now that exists where you're either taking responsibility for things in your life, including yourself, or you're letting go of responsibility and taking somebody else's influence. And that seems to be the big game. Yeah, and it's being pushed. You know, um, it's it's a hell of a lot easier to not be responsible. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you even have people telling you not to be that you can't be right. That's, and this is part of victim culture. Um, you can see this all ties together, you know, from the attack on culture that's happening through critical theories and things like that is really tied in with all of this because that is, you know, convincing everyone they're a victim and that they have no responsibility or accountability and that, you know, only these people over here that we tell you to only listen to these doctors, you know, even though there's 10,000 other doctors who are saying the opposite, well, don't listen to them <laughs> because they're not Australia. Chosen. Yeah, they're not our chosen doctors. Only listen to the ones we tell you to listen to, you know. And, Four out of five that, doctors that we recommend <laughs> say this. Yeah. yeah. Or four out of five doctors that are on our payroll. <laughs> four out of five doctors agree that that last doctor is an idiot. <laughs> it, just, it keeps reminding me of those little videos that I used to see on Facebook where they would just be like uh, realizations of a stoner or something. And they would like flip through all of these things. And one of them was like, my toothpaste says four out of five doctors recommend this toothpaste, but... The doctors are only in business if I have bad teeth. <laughs> then, like the light bulb comes on. Exactly. The, 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 yeah. Oh my god, I love that meme. I, I think for, as far as as far as practical applications go, like like Brandon said, you know, make babies, which is good advice all around. I, I mean, you know, it's probably the easiest and funnest thing you can do. But second, <laughs> second to that, well, at least for guys, second to that. Um, eh. Be optimistic. (laughs) Gingy. Second to that, uh, and and, you know, knowing your body, which is kind of a kind of 
obliquely related to making babies. But second to that um, would be learning to plant a garden. Just silly, stupid things. Like Brandon, for example, he uh, got his, his radio license. He got his ham license. That's huge. That's not – you can't restrict – well, you, you can kind of scramble, but you can't restrict – bouncing radio waves off the ionosphere. You can't do it. And if you can create a community with that, well, hey. I think a lot of the folks... I mean, if the world's a globe, I mean, I guess. Ginny, <laughs> uh, you don't do that. <laughs> That's hilarious. No, no but, someone you, actually pulled that shit on Brandon, and I was laughing my yeah. ass off earlier, because yeah, I was like... like, <laughs> like oh, God. Like, literally, you know, said... You know, I was just, you know talking about the nature of emf you know how you can right bounce, or how how i can communicate with someone in south africa yeah and the comment was well how can that happen on a globe i go uh because those frequencies bounce off the ionosphere <laughs> that's, that's how it works and in right. fact if it wasn't a globe well then i would be able to reach a person in south africa on all frequencies i'd be able to yeah line of sight I'd be able to reach them on VHF. I'd be able to reach them in all, on all the radio bands. But the fact is, only on the HF bands can I bounce my frequencies off the ionosphere. And Hell, so I can get yeah. my signal can go a lot further than it can with line of sight frequencies, which right. when they, because of their, because they're a higher frequency, they pass right through the ionosphere. So they just, right. you know, they just shoot off into space. Right. Um, you communicate. You so, can communicate via via lasers if you if you were on a flat plane, <laughs> which yeah. would actually be pretty cool. But yeah, all I, right. I mean, let's let's not let's not go down the flat Earth rabbit hole. Yeah, no, we're not. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, back back to back to what I was saying though. Like things like planting a garden, making babies, learning animal husbandry, learning how to hunt. I mean, not you, Genji, but in general, because I know you're not into killing animals, but um, thing, things like <laughs> things like uh, things like uh, learning to fix your own car. Um, part of I think one of the one of the I I'm the reason I was clickety clacking on my keyboard. I'm sorry about that. Was I was looking for a video I saw where somebody actually went onto the World Economic Forum's website, and it was something everybody could see. And they had this wonderful uh, graphical interface of how this plan, this multi pronged plan, worked. And in all of these spokes of this little plan graphic, they had things oh, like... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I went to that uh, interface. Right. So, and somebody, somebody, they dug right down. And it's, it's really beautifully made. And they, I mean, from a graphic design, from a design standpoint, from an interactivity standpoint, but they drilled down and they're like, oh, look, 5G is one of the prongs. Oh, look, uh, human... They drilled down to genetic alteration and um, uh, what was it? Genetic alteration and AI were kind of on the same level. They, they, the, the whole plan is there, and coronavirus and preparation for coronavirus was, I mean, it's been in the cards for forever, and just that coronavirus just happened to be the, you know, the, the, the thing they executed on. So really, anything you can do that's antithetical to that, and Brandon's brought this up before, totally 100% on board, your, your job locally, I mean, shy of becoming a politician your job locally is to make every bureaucrat's life a living hell i mean honestly anytime anybody <laughs> passes i'm i'm not kidding that look there i'll paraphrase stan lee and and something i tell my kids with with great power 
comes unlimited liability. So, if, <laughs> uh, well, that's not exactly how Stan Lee said it, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, right? No, but seriously, with with great power comes unlimited liability. These people are, are are swinging a sword, and they're physically liable. These people are absolutely liable. So, anything you can do to get involved in something as local as possible, because if you're like, okay, for example, if you if you go up and you're like, well, I'm gonna do an act of violence at this three-letter agency. You know, you so much as you so much as do a terrorism or threaten to do a terrorism, you're put on a watch list, and you've got the full might of the uh, of the U.S. government coming down on you. And you know, they do it just as soon as they you know take a bathroom break. It's it's something that's what you know the internet was built for, arguably. But that you you're not going to get roving gangs of um, you're not you're not going to be a targeted person. Or a uh, or a person of interest, if you're simply going after a council person, and um, when I say going after, I mean holding their feet to the fire, right? That when it comes to stuff like when people go out and they protest, you go out and protest. I mean, you're going to end up, and especially lately, you're going to end up at like FBI fest, which they just had, right? With all the all the glories, <laughs> all the glories out. That that's what they want people to do. That's literally what they the FBI put this together so a bunch of morons would show up and all it was was federal agents one of which got arrested hysterical the joke writes itself and then uh journalists journalists watching feds that's all that was and people are wise to that now and instead of you know driving a bajillion years to get to the swamp in washington dc your time is better spent if you're going to get involved in something local school boards if your kids are in school all kind, there are all kinds of places where these where folks where the rubber hits the road when it comes to these world economic forum policies and somebody somewhere somebody that probably lives within a couple of miles of you signed that piece of paper and finding out who that is where they're getting their money and all that fun stuff and then you know holding their feet like you know, project veritas does that a lot i mean i think they're a little dramatic but you know they do that a lot and that same thing can happen locally. And, and, you know, but that's like after you have some, you know, some food stored away, you've learned to use okay. a weapon. I'm going gonna, I'm like gonna, gonna to bring it back around because I feel like we've gone from population control back to collapse of the <laughs> collapse oh, of society. Um, but, but I do want to touch on a point that you kind of glossed over. Um, the, the importance of pointing out standing up to um refusing to go along with these more insidious things like you know i've been joking about it over the last week about like you know the dehumanization of women um you need we need to stop that we need to we need to make it not okay to call women bodies with vaginas you know what i mean like we have to not go along with that we have to call it out and, and, the, and the same thing with children. You know, they're dehumanizing women. They're dehumanizing children. And, you know, again, the topic being population control, that's how you can get away. When you've de- I mean, they've already successfully brainwashed all of us through school that evidently it's not even a, a, a baby isn't a child until it comes out the vagina. That's what we've all been convinced to believe. Right. And that goes right along with Miss Margaret Sanger's uh, agenda of 
just annihilating children while they're in the womb. And, and so we don't call them children. And so this is part of the dehumanization, you know, like what we talked about, what that article spoke on about like forced sterilizations and forced abortions, you know, because in our society, most people would go along with that because they don't see a child in the womb as a child. And so there is this dehumanization that's been happening for decades and so you have, we have to stand up to it. We have to call it out. We have, we have to, we have to call it what it is, you know, and, and as uncomfortable as that may be in, in our society, because it is a, a decades long propaganda campaign against children. And now it's being turned on women as well. You know, if you don't stop it, if you don't call it out, if you don't stand up to it, if you don't refuse it, like it becomes normalized and when it becomes normalized, that's when it becomes really easy. Right. You know, when you've right. dehumanized woman, well then, uh, sterilizing it isn't a big deal. Right. Right. We sterilize right. animals. Right. And so it, it, when you've dehumanized the woman, then you then you would get a pot you can get a population to go along with sterilizing a woman because in reality even though of course there there is an attack on 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 men's fertility as well but they know that the more important because here's the thing it's more important to get the women sterilized because one man can impregnate 30 women in a weekend, you know, so it's not, it's like, it, you, like you need to target the women to, and, 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 and destroy their fertility because that's how you stop population. That's how you reduce the population. And so I find it very insidious and like, yeah, it is a, I mean, at some level it is a complete joke because it's freaking clown world you know, yeah. bodies with vaginas, like, come on, that's, it's fucking clown world. That's ridiculous. Right. Like we, like they're refusing to use the word woman. Look, like you will see it. It is disappearing. Right. CNN won't use the word woman. The New York times won't use the word woman. Bir birthing person. Yeah. The fucking stupid ass things like that. Yeah. I mean, I in 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 our I think in a lot of folks' world in their in in their local world, I don't think a lot of folks are dealing with that directly. I mean, I I haven't personally run into anybody who. I think I have actually run into one or two people using they them pronouns, but I mean, it never it never becomes it's never there where they're starting to assert. I haven't had a I haven't had somebody assert. Um, assert being a, a person with a vagina right i haven't i haven't i haven't seen that <laughs> yeah, because they're women and they and they know they're women and they see right. themselves as women and they'll call themselves a woman like in in reality this you know and this comes mostly out of critical queer theory but it's an attack <laughs> it, no that's a real thing i'm not joking. i know <laughs> I, it's never not funny though man it's never not funny it's so funny. yeah and but that and and it is an attack. It's not only an attack on women. It's an attack on on homosexuality as well. 
Like, it's funny because they act like they're buddy-buddy and partners with them. Like, oh, hey, we're you and you're us and you're part of our team. But this is an attack on women and homosexuals is what it didn't is. It, didn't it literally say in this um, article that we were reading through? Um, actually, let me find it. It said something like there's a section about women and gender or something like that. No, you're thinking about something else that we, <laughs> that we were reading earlier. It was my joke articles that I, that we were reading, women and gender. It was oh. the colonization of the vagina, the colonized oh, that's right. vagina. That's <laughs> oh right. my that's god! Right. The god, colonized is... vagina. Brand, I mean, if and you're right, it is clown world. Pointing it out, I, I I haven't had the chance, and I'm not exactly chomping at the bit because that's going to depend on on the group, whether or not they have pitchforks, right? So No, no, no. Here's, here's the best way to do it, man. Like, I, uh, you guys remember, like, um, many, many months ago when I, we did the call, and actually this might have been just me and Gingy. I don't remember if you guys have even heard it. But we did a, a, a critical theory uh, discussion. Yeah. And I talked about how Eddie Murphy had done way more for racial injustice than – Ibram X. Kendi or uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, any of the critical theorists, right. they are doing nothing for the black community. They are harming people of color. But Eddie Murphy diffused it. And how did he do it? Through comedy. Yeah. So that's why, like, for me, like, making the joke, because these people take themselves too seriously. I mean, they take themselves dead serious. They can't yeah. joke anymore. They don't even have the capacity for humor. Like, have right. you seen comedy? Comedy yeah. is ridiculous. Well, at least the woke comedians. Like, they're horrible. They're not even yeah. remotely funny. And everyone's yeah. laughing. I'm like, what is this? Are we just like, oh, I should laugh at this, so I'm going to force a laugh at this? Like, I know <laughs> this isn't humor. Brandon, Spontaneously laughing at this, but because it's funny, it's but when it's a laugh you can track. point out the ridiculousness of of everything that they're doing and everything that they're saying and make it a joke. Like I was telling, I had a dude, I had a five hour Zoom call yesterday, and I, I was I I told you know I was telling the people like you know I have I have all these platforms that I contribute to that I write on and that you know I post things on. And, and Twitter came up and I go, oh, yeah, <laughs> I go on Twitter, but all I do on Twitter is troll. All I do <laughs> on Twitter is troll people. <laughs> like, I just make fun of them. I point out how stupid they are. Oh, um, yeah. I, I, like, I'll just drop a comment like, you're a fucking idiot. You know, like, <laughs> little things like that. Like, I just troll. That's all Twitter. Wait, wait, wait. What did you say to What's-Her-Face? Marianne Williamson. Do you guys know yeah. who Marianne Williamson is? That she she's like you know she's all spiritual, new agey, and she did the courses on the on the conversations with God and shit. And she yeah. got into politics, right? So she's oh, all man. yeah, she's all communist out, right? So she she made this post on Twitter. Like I actually, she's one of my favorite people to troll. I troll her constantly, um, <laughs> but she she made this post where she said. She was basically like talking shit on like the Koch brothers, you know, like, oh, if they took all these billions that they made and just gave it to the poor, all the poor people would have a house. Right. And so I go into her feed. I'm all, hey, 
Marianne, you're a millionaire. Why don't you liquidate all your assets and give it all to the poor? And then I skip a few lines. I go, be the communism you want to see in the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How many times have you been banned, Brandon? I haven't been banned at all. No way. Yeah, Dude, I, cre I created a troll account and I got my butt kicked. I, I, and then I stopped going to Twitter almost altogether. Matthew's yeah, going through it. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, that's that. That's yeah. I, I mean, my shit on YouTube gets banned, <laughs> but yeah. I don't. But nothing on. Uh, nothing. I mean, not that I know of. Like, I haven't. My account hasn't been locked or anything like that. I don't know if they've erased my posts or whatever. I don't think so. Like, I oh, think man. I would get a notice or something because I'm pretty sure they lock you out of your account and make you delete the posts. Yeah. That. So they, they, they'll do that or they'll just straight up can you. They can me. Well, here's the thing. Like, I'm not dropping truth on Twitter. That's when you get banned. I'm yeah, trolling. Yeah. I'm just talking shit. That's what Twitter is. That's all yeah. Twitter is. Yeah, it's I mean, just, so that, shit talking. That, makes you, that makes you as dangerous to them. No offense, but that kind of makes you as dangerous to them as a bot, which is Twitter is mostly yeah. bots anyway. So if, yeah. you're just, if you're just spitting out something that a bot would spit out just to – just a, just a troll, I can see why they would be like, oh, you know, that's just some dude or not even, that's just some robo dude. That makes sense. Right. Maybe, maybe, I sh maybe I should have toned it down a little bit and not been so truthy because I was... Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that, my, my, and again, I, I, there's purpose in those posts because for me, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out the lunacy. I'm pointing out the ridiculousness. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so that, to me, that's what I use Twitter for. Now, I, I wouldn't make those posts on Facebook, you know, because on, on, on Facebook, I got family and my kids and, you know, yeah. I, I don't want to embarrass them. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, I didn't, yeah. I mean, I have a, so I have Facebook, a, but on Facebook, I drop truth. Yeah. I just, I just drop it, you know, and that's it. Like, I don't yeah. make comments on it. I don't make comments on anybody else's shit. Like, I just drop things drop yeah. things and you don't drop and i drop things that are like make you think about something you know what i mean like i'll drop like there's this great uh guy who does poetry you know on youtube and he's you know breaks down what's happening but in such a beautiful way and it's really thought-provoking poetry and so i'll drop his stuff on there you yeah. know so i drop things like that on facebook where it's like what's hey i'm name? gonna make you think uh, I just go to my Facebook profile. I, you know, it's on there. Uh, I've dropped. I haven't shit. been on Facebook in months <laughs> and months, like once since I quit the gym. I, it's like it's like something journal or J Ernal, like J dot Ernal, like a journal, some, something journal or journal something. Um, I've dropped it in Telegram. I've dropped his stuff in Telegram before. In fact, he's probably there's probably one of his poems pinned in our chat group. Hmm. Well, that can't like be right. He did, that, Let me take a look. he did that poem, Resistance. He did a, like, he's done a whole bunch of them. And I've, I've dropped them in Telegram. Yeah, Gingy, it's not J urinal. It's no. O-U-R-N-A-L, not yeah. urinal. <laughs> not urinal. Not you don't, you're going to get, you're going to get some nasty. You don't want to <laughs> post that to the group. Please don't. Um, yeah. Found I, <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's journal, but J. Ernal. 
Yeah. 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 Journal poems. Yeah, Dude, that's, that's like awesome. my poetry. Journal poems. No. No. <laughs> yeah. I, but that's, I mean, as, as practical stuff and, goes, yeah. And, I, and again, I drop funny stuff. Um, most of it is usually relevant and contextual and should be thought provoking. But sometimes I just, I'll just drop stuff that I find funny. Like the other day, the, I'm going to be a jazillionaire. <laughs> Dude, I, I think I don't know found that shit funny. I fucking cracked up when I saw that. Dude, and I, I was in tears. Everywhere. I was just like, oh, like that shit made me laugh. And so I, I took a snapshot of it and I just put it everywhere. I just put it everywhere. Nick, did you not see that? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... Uh, okay. So it's, it's this guy. So it's on Twitter, right? This guy on Twitter, he posts a thing and he says, um, uh, the semen mark, the unvaxxed semen market is coming. Okay. And then, the oh, guy, yes, I have seen this. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy's yeah. responding to his tweet and he's all, I'm going to be a gazillionaire. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is one of my favorite, like the, the market, the market for un It's uh, an initial public offering, and it's going to be disgusting. So I just yeah, tagged I you in it. I just tagged you in it, Nick. That is just, that is so yes. That yes. I mean, <laughs> I do. Oh I thought hilarious, but I posted it in Telegram, and nobody even responded to it. I'm like, ah, oh, I guess I'm the only one who thinks that shit's funny. Well, that's because we can't like respond with the laughing emoji or face or whatever. You have to I like know. actually reply and post it. But mm -hmm. dude, I was in tears because, <laughs> like, I love it when I see people that post shit like that. That's just so spot on with the joke. It's just too perfect. <laughs> I just so spell it out. It's perfect. <laughs> oh, did you read it? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I, man, that's great. Hey, you guys. Speaking of depopulation, you know, <laughs> and you know, just, just inches. <laughs> Speaking of repopulating the planet with a highly sought after seed, um, I was, it's fun. I, you, you kept telling, Brandy, you kept saying to, to Gingy and, and me, you kept saying, uh, you know, you guys are just repeating the points. You guys kind of get, you guys are, are saying the things they say. Um, I live in Georgia, or I live on Georgia, <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, we're going in day. Uh, uh, yeah, the Guidestones. Uh, people, people, I mean, there are stories sometimes locally about how people deface them. And I don't think people understand what, why they're there and, and who put them there. I don't think people get what that really is. And I think, um, my, my unpopular opinion, because people, people shit on them all the time, sometimes literally. And, um, I think honest to God, it, it was funded. I mean, I'm almost positive it was funded by Ted Turner because it's something he would do. And, they put it in they put those in georgia partially because georgia i mean this area is geologically stable um these mountain App appalachia has been around forever enough to like erode all of its gold into the rivers um hello did we lose now? yeah uh, i'm not hearing <laughs> He's been eroded into the river. 
thinking. Yeah. Okay, there we go. What the heck? There is, talking about yeah, George Guidestones to get cut off. Yeah, that was scary. Sorry, sorry, Ted. Sorry, 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 Ted Turner. Uh, but <laughs> they, uh, I, th I think the reason they put that down was um, it wasn't because people see it as like a telegraph or like they're telegraphing their plans or whatever. It's not that at all. I think that they put those there under the threat when they were built, under the threat of nuclear annihilation. And the idea, and they and the stones are on all of these plinths, all these um, giant standing stones. They have their idea for the New World Order, more or less, written in multiple languages. The idea is that if there's like a pole shift of the Earth or something terrible happens or whatever, some catastrophe, because... You know, the Earth herself, we know from geology that she's no stranger to catastrophe, that at, when people come crawling out of the mud, you know, and there are like 10 people on the planet, they find these stones and then rebuild the new society post-nuclear apocalypse, according to these tenets. So, 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 yeah, so, I, you know, me and my group of nine friends find these stones and it's like, well, it says we got to have population of 500 million. We better get to work. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's exactly what that right? is. exactly what that is. They're like, no, it's, it's the globalist. And it is. But they're just being like, this is, it's like, a, it's a time capsule for, you know, post whatever disaster happens. I don't, I really don't think, and I'll bet, I'll bet money there's something buried under it. Something that would, to the people smart enough to translate or read it after, you know, everything collapses and there are like two people on the planet. I think there are things there that will enable them to be, I guess, the new elites or the new gods, maybe a piece of technology that is impossible to recreate in a what it would essentially be like a Bronze Age or a Stone Age environment and a way to govern people when the population of the Earth is growing again. That was my take on it. That I, I think people give it a bad rap, and I think it's more of a, like like Brandon said, these folks are scared, and I think... Some very very rich man uh, believed the, you know, somewhat real propaganda that there was going to be a nuclear exchange, and we needed to, you know, if the world's going to be wiped, we need to we need to set these policies in stone, literally, for people to discover later. That's that's my that's my opinion. People people love to hate them, and I'm like, well, I don't I don't know if you I don't know I don't know if that's the case. Yeah, I. I don't care enough about them to hate or like them. <laughs> to me, it's, okay, great. Somebody, somebody uh, wrote some shit on some stones. That, to yeah. me, that's the like. I'm much more concerned with the actions that people are taking. You know? Yeah, like whatever you write on stone, big deal. That's in fact, you have a right. Write whatever the fuck you want on rocks. Um, however, uh, when you start, you know culling the population, you know, intentionally, then I have issues. When you start destroying the culture intentionally, then I have issues. Um, but yeah, what some, what somebody may or may not have written on a rock and what their intention behind what they wrote on the rock, eh, I don't really give a fuck. All righty, y'all. It was real. It was fun. And uh, I will talk real to fun. everyone again real soon. Have a good evening.
Take it easy, y'all. Good night. Hashtag blessed.